do much. It's his righteousness. So we just come to him and we ask him to work. And then when he does work, we notice and we just say thank you. So that's my prayer for our church. Just continue in that direction. Um, now, I'd like to introduce our speaker. And I don't really need to introduce him because he was here last week. And usually you need a little bit of a break from him. You know, you had him last week, but he's here again this week. And, and I am sorry for that, but this is the only way I can get him to come to church. So I had to, <laughs> had to do it this way. So now please welcome Walter Crouch to the stage. Yeah. And I want you to keep in mind, there were a lot of people here last night that were up praying. So oh, that's right. try to keep it, you know, within reason. Oh, my goodness. How do you guys put up with him? I tell you. He, yeah, he's a blessing. You know, in, in the Old Testament, the word barak in Hebrew is both means blessing and a curse. Same word, just context. That's like Dallas. It just depends on context, whether he's a blessing or a curse. I'm telling you, so it's the way it is. Well, I tell you, it gave me an impossible task last week. I mean, three chapters... In, in the book of Romans. I mean, Romans is like this compendium of theology. It's, to me, Paul's watershed work. It's one of the greatest, if not the greatest, theological book in the whole Bible, except for the teachings of Jesus himself. And so I had to do, what, four, five, and six. And guess what? I did it. I got done on time, on time. And Dallas was very grateful for that. He let me know. I'm not sure how tonight will go. I'm just forewarning you. And then, so tonight I have seven, eight, and nine. And I looked at that and I'm like, you are absolutely out of your mind. I mean, Romans chapter eight is like, I mean, it's like, it's on par with like Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, or Matthew 5, you know, the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, it's one of the greatest chapters in all the Bible. And how, can, how in the world, I mean, he wants me to spend one night on three chapters and I would spend like, I don't know, three months on just chapter 8, okay? So here's what we're going to do. Chapter 7 is, is, a, is, a, is a great chapter. You need to read it. It's where Paul struggles with his dilemma, his dilemma of saying those things I want to do, I don't do, and those things I don't want to do, those things I do. Oh, wretched man that I am. How many have ever felt like that? I mean, all the time. And here Paul, I mean, as I said, the greatest theologian in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul himself, the greatest missionary in the early church, struggled with doing things he knew he shouldn't do and not doing the things he thought he should do. And he calls himself a wretched man because at base, we are all sinners. Paul had just said in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all sinners. We're all sinners, but thank God we're saved by grace, right? We're all sinners. The argument of the book is, look, Gentile Christians, Jewish Christians, you're all on the same level. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. We're all on the same plane. We're all sinners, and we're all saved the same way. No one's better than anyone else. I mean, that's been his message up through this point of the book, and in chapter 7 he says, even I struggle with these things. And he introduces in that chapter this concept of the flesh. This idea that in his flesh, in his sinful nature, 
He does things he doesn't want to do. And he puts that as opposed to the spirit, being in the spirit. So you're either in the flesh or in the spirit. In the flesh or in the spirit. Now, in the early church, some heresies arose because of that whole concept of in the flesh or in the spirit. There was a dualism that, ar- that arose, that I can do anything I want to do with my body in the flesh because my flesh is evil and it's sinful. But ah, as long as my spirit, in my mind, I know good and think good, I'm okay. There was, it's called a dualism, and that is not what Paul is saying here at all. It's not the difference between your body and your mind. The difference between flesh and spirit is it's your sinful flesh, your sinful human nature, and it's God's spirit that dwells in you. Big difference. Huge difference. And Paul says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin? And he says, thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ, because it's Christ that delivers us from this dilemma that we're in. Okay, that's chapter 7. I'll stop there. You can read the rest. Chapter 9, okay? I'm coming back to chapter 8. Chapter 9, okay? So, after Paul has said all this, that Jewish Christians do not have any advantage over Gentile Christians, the question comes up, well, then what about Israel? What about God's chosen people? What do we do about Israel? In chapters 9 through 11... 9 and 11 especially, but 9 through 11, talk about that. So read chapters 9 through 11 and you'll get your answer, because I'm not going to go through that tonight. Because I want to spend whatever precious time we have on Romans chapter 8. Oh my goodness. This chapter is just so chock full of incredibly wonderful verses that you should know by heart. I mean, you should know them by heart, because you need to rely on them in times of difficulty in times of trouble to remind yourself of the incredible promises that are given to us that have been adopted into the family of God. So I call tonight's study, first slide, the power and glory being adopted into God's family. This chapter 8 is just full of so many good things. I really hate to give, I mean, you know, it's like, you know, (laughs) I, I, I had the privilege of teaching in Russia about every other year. For a, uh, for a number of years, uh, teaching Russian pastors. And I, I loved it. I love the Russian people, by the way. Don't, they're leaders. That's another story. But the people, just incredibly wonderful people. And uh, teaching their pastors was one of the greatest privileges of my life. And uh, uh, over there, though, is the Hermitage. Next to the Louvre in Paris, the Hermitage is the greatest collection of artworks in the world. And Rembrandt's painting, The Prodigal, is at the Hermitage. And I got to tell you, you go and stand in front of that painting. You can't just do, you know how, this is how I am at most art museums. Oh, look at that one. Oh, that one's nice. Well, that one's good too. You know, just move on down the line. When you come to Rembrandt's The Prodigal, and you just look at, I just, I mean, you were transfixed. I could not move. It was just incredible to just look at that picture and contemplate upon the story of the prodigal son. And there's no way I could just say, oh, that's nice, and move on to the next one. Romans chapter 8 and all the verses in here, it's just impossible to say, oh, that's nice, and move on to the next one. 
It's just an incredibly powerful chapter. And I think, I hope I just give you a taste of that tonight and that you take that and in your own study, go back and just dissect the chapter from beginning to end. You will be so rewarded because I really believe the end of Romans chapter 8, when it comes to not the Gospels, but the rest of the New Testament, it's the high watermark of the whole New Testament. It really is. It's just incredible. And we'll get there. All right, let's go to the next slide. First incredible verse, Romans 8.1. Now, I know you can't see that because I can't hardly see it either, but we did this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I mean, that's how the chapter starts. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christo Jesu, in Christ Jesus. Paul uses this idea. We often talk about, I have Jesus in my heart. Folks, we, I think we need to change that language. I mean, it's great language. I love it. I mean, I said the same thing when I was a little kid all the time. I had Jesus in my heart. But the fact of the matter is, what's important is that you are in Jesus as much as Jesus is in you. Paul often speaks about being in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus. He, doesn't talk, he talks about the Spirit being in us, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ being in us, but that we are in Christ Jesus, which basically means we are in the body of Christ, that we are part of what Christ is doing in this world, that we are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is how the chapter starts. And guess what? It gets better after this. Now, let me hit a couple misconceptions about this verse, though. First of all, Let's put it in context. First of all, we are set free from the law of sin and death. We've been talking about that. That was in when Dallas did the first three chapters. We talked about it last week. When you are in Christ Jesus, you have been set free from the law of sin and death. But here's the place where we get this wrong. We are not innocent, though. Just because there's no condemnation doesn't mean we're innocent. It doesn't mean we've been found not guilty. In fact, it means just the opposite. It means we have been found guilty but there's no punishment for us because Jesus Christ paid the punishment on our behalf. Right? A lot of times when we hear no condemnation, it's almost like no one can bring an accusation against us. Like we've done nothing wrong. Believe me, if I understand the role of the accuser, Satan, every day there are tons of things floating up about you, Steve. Every day. Right? Well, not just Steve, all of us. The accuser is accusing consistently and constantly. Why? Because there's things to accuse us about. We're like Paul, right? We do things we don't want to do. We don't do the things we should do. And the enemy is saying, look, look at, look at, look at him. Look, look, look. That's what he did to Job, right? Before God. Well, look at your servant Job. He has everything. No wonder he loves you. Take it away from him. See what he does. That's the accuser at work. But the accuser isn't just accusing. Uh, he probably lies about stuff we do, but we probably give him enough am ammunition that he doesn't have to lie about us. He is constantly accusing. We are guilty. We are guilty. We are not innocent. This verse does not say we are innocent. It just says we don't have to pay the penalty for what we've done. If, if 
if we are in Christ Jesus. We are in Christ Jesus. The Spirit of Christ is, he goes on in this chapter and says, the Spirit of Christ is in you. So you are in Christ. Let's get the Spirit of Christ is in you. God's Spirit that energizes you, gives you, I believe, a supernatural gift that you did not have before the Spirit came in you. Something that you can do now that you name Christ that you weren't able to. It gives you the power of God in your life to be able to live the life that God wants you to live. Something you couldn't do until you came to know Christ. It is impossible. I get so upset when I watch TV shows and they get some preacher on there that pulls out his Bible and starts spouting his Bible at people that are unsaved and expects them somehow for that Bible verse to have authority in their lives. It makes absolutely no sense to me to do that. No sense. They're not Christian. Even if they understood what the Bible was saying, they couldn't live up to it because we can't live up to it unless we have the Spirit of God in our lives to give us power to perform and obey the commandments of God. We can't do it without God's Spirit. And I get it, you know, it's, no, it, it doesn't work. That Bible doesn't carry authority with people that aren't believers. We've got to understand that. It's not, they're not magic verses that we just read out loud and somehow somebody no no they don't carry the authority we can't expect people to obey the bible who aren't christians we can't expect them they we can't do it without the spirit of god and we're telling them they should do it now it doesn't mean we can't stand up for the morality it represents i'm not saying that please don't hear that but just don't expect them you say well because the bible says and they're saying well, so what? Let me show you my Bible. I mean, I actually had that happen to me when I was trying to witness to a, a Mormon one time. Of course, he pulls out the Book of Mormon. Well, here's my, you know, and then we had to get into a discussion about which Bible was the right Bible. And I realized soon that this was going to be a much longer discussion than I had in mind when I started it. Right? I mean, sometimes we just think, you know, we just quick draw, bingo, another scalp. It doesn't work that way. I mean, if you really love people, you will take the time they need to realize that God's Spirit is dealing in their hearts. Because if you try to shorten that time period, you might condemn them to an eternity without God simply because you didn't have the patience. Thank God He was patient with me. Right? Thank God He was patient with me. And we are alive because of Christ's righteousness, righteousness in us. And eventually that will lead into life eternal i want to see that's the first section one one through 13 let's move on though because there's so much good stuff next slide romans 8 14 to 15 listen to this verse these verses for all who are being led by the spirit of god these are the sons of god for you have received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again for you have not received there's a not missing in that verse right there for you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. I love this verse um, simply because Paul brings the family metaphor into our relationship to God. Um, God as Father. Jesus teaches this when he teaches us the Lord's Prayer, right? How does it start? Our Father. In that is the the word abba abba the hebrew word av av would be like dad 
Abba would be like Daddy. Much more intimate, much more personal. Now, the reason this is incredible to me is you have to understand the context out of which Jesus first said this in the Lord's Prayer, and Paul is saying this as he talks about our relationship to God. It comes out of the context of first century Judaism. Do you realize that in the Hebrew Bible, you cannot read in Judaism, you cannot read the name of God, which is Yahweh. It's too holy to even go on human lips. That it is disrespectful, disrespectful to, to say God's name out loud. In fact, everywhere Yahweh appears, they substitute for Yahweh the Hebrew word Elohim, which is the word God. So everywhere, so, um, uh, so uh, or Adonai, they'll use Adonai, Lord at times. Adonai, Elohim, often together, Lord God, rather than, rather than the word Yahweh. Now, in your Old Testament, in your Bible, if you want to know wherever it says Yahweh, wherever in the Old Testament, it is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Wherever you read that in your English translation, that is where in the Hebrew it is the personal name for God, Yahweh. Yahweh. Okay. Now, in Judaism, you can't even say the name of God. You have to say, you have to say God because God's name is too holy. Well, how irreverent do you think it would be to go beyond just God's personal name and call God Daddy? A monstrous step. I mean, they, when Jesus called God his Father, that got the rabbis upset and the Pharisees upset. Let alone not just calling God Father, but calling him Daddy, a term of endearment, a closeness that was not there before. Let me see if I can give an example. I'm going to do this. Is he in the room? Yeah, he's in the room. So Aiden drives my wife crazy sometimes. Aiden is our youngest. He's sitting right there. And he drives my wife crazy because he will call her Pamela. Pamela. He'll say, Pamela. And Pam does not like it at all. I am mom. I am mom. Why? Because mom shows a relationship, right? Mother, son. It also shows endearment. This is mom, not Pamela. I mean, when I think of something like that, I think, you know, you'll watch a movie and the grown son or daughter calls the parent by their name rather than mom or dad anymore, because somehow I guess that's supposed to be good. I, I, I don't understand that myself. Um, but, but Pam doesn't like it because you lose the endearment, you lose the relationship. What Paul is saying here, and what Jesus, when he taught us to pray was, is for us to understand the closeness of the relationship that we have with the creator of the universe. This isn't some God way out there somewhere ruling with an iron fist over all the universe. But it's a God who chooses to come and dwell with us by the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Who dearly loves us more than anything. One that we can say, Daddy. Daddy. Now I don't know about you, 
But very seldom do I ever pray and go, Daddy, maybe we should. Maybe our relationship to God should feel that intimate. Still done with respect. But respect to the fact that God loved us so much that he gave his only begotten son to come and to die for us so that we might have eternal life and have eternal relationship with him, with God the Father. He isn't some God way off out there judging us. He's a God who wants to come and live within us and with us. He is Daddy. Daddy, Abba. And we have been adopted into God's family. Now, Roman adoption, and Steve, not stealing, I'm adding on to this great foundation Steve already gave us a, couple, a few Sundays back about talking about adoption. Roman adoption, though, think about Roman adoption and think about us being adopted into God's family. What a picture in that day compared to today. Roman adoption, first of all, was not that, didn't happen that often. And it was a hard process to go through, a hard process to get through. But if you did it and you were adopted in a lot of, I mean, it was a patriarchal society, right? And if, if, a, if a Roman who had some nobility of any kind uh, didn't have a son, maybe had no children or just had daughters, would often find a young man that, they would adopt so that they would have an heir. And these were the things that would happen. If you were adopted, you lost all rights to your old family. No rights. Secondly, your old life was wiped away. Didn't matter what you did in your old life, it was gone. It was like you never existed. Third, you gained all the rights to the new family. Fourth, you became heir to the new father's estate, just like a natural-born son. And lastly, you were a son absolutely, in fact, almost more so than a natural-born son. Because if you chose to adopt somebody, you could not then unadopt them. Where if you had a natural-born son, you could write them out of your will. So the picture of us being adopted into God's family is stronger almost in that day and age than the picture of a natural-born child. Incredibly unrevocable. That when you're adopted in God's family, your old life is gone. It has no claim on you. None of those rights are there. You're forgiven of all your past. And you're entitled to all the rights of being in God's family. And you're a co-heir with Jesus Christ. I, I mean, can it get any better than being a co-heir with Jesus? I mean, we're going to read that in just a moment. That's in Romans 8 as well, right? It's coming up. So you're a son, absolutely. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a good old Baptist. I've told you guys this before. I believe in once saved, always saved. But the thing about it is, is you've got to be once saved. Because anybody goes around saying, well, once saved, always saved, probably wasn't saved the first time. Right? Because usually that's an excuse for their behavior. I mean, I, I will pray and believe like it all depends on me. Uh, it all depends on God, and I'll work like it all depends on me. I mean, that's just kind of the way I have to do things. All right, we're going to move because the best verses are coming up. i got to run through these way too quickly. Let's go to the next slide. Romans 8, 18. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
Oh, my goodness. Do you realize what that's saying? That anything you go through in this world is not even a worthy comparison to the glory that we shall experience someday. Now, I know that's hard. A lot of us have gone through some very difficult things. Heartbreak. Uh, betrayal. Broken hearts. Broken relationships. Uh, sickness. Things like that. Things that are very, very difficult to fathom. And Paul is saying, no matter what suffering we've gone through in this world, not only is it not comparable, it's not even worthy to be compared to the glories that we shall experience. Now, I don't know how to explain that because that kind of thing is even beyond my mind. That, that the glory that we will participate in, the joy and the experience of that is way beyond the depth of the pain and suffering that I've ever experienced in my life. I mean, isn't that even hard in your minds to imagine what that would be like? I, I, can't, I can't fathom that because I've had some very painful things in my life. And I'm thinking the depth of that pain, the mountain that I will experience of God's glory in the future is so high that it makes that pain look trivial. It's hard for me to understand. But what does it say? It says in the verse before that we as children of God will be co-heirs with Christ. Christ is our brother. God is our father. God the father. Abba, daddy. And that we are co-heirs with Jesus. That means that what? We're entitled to what the Father has to give. Because we've been adopted. It says we will be glorified with Christ in that verse. See, these are concepts that are beyond us. Because we don't, we're not taught these all the time. We're not preached these all the time. What does it mean we're going to be heirs with Jesus? And we're going to be glorified with Jesus? You know what it means? When this thing called eternity hits us, it's going to be beyond anything we could ever imagine or think. Wow, I think even the scripture says that to us too, doesn't it? That that, that experience is going to be beyond uh, Ephesians 3.20, if somebody wants to look that verse up. That, that what? That it's beyond anything we can imagine or think. And I, my mind can't comprehend that right now. I can't. I've had some high highs in this world, some really high highs. I mean, you know, getting married, having my first child, seeing my kids do incredibly wonderful things. I mean, I, I, mean, I get to sit out here on Sunday mornings and watch my son preach up there. I, I mean, these are incredible joys. But apparently these joys are really just shadows, just, just maybe a foretaste of glory divine that we will all experience someday. I have no description of that. I don't, I don't know what heaven and eternity is going to be like. I just know that it is so beyond our wildest comprehension that all the things of this earth, as the old hymns say, says, will grow strangely dim. Strangely dim. Because what? We will be experiencing a joy that will make us forget all the pain all the sorrow. God will wipe every tear from every eye. Pain and sorrow will be no more. I don't know what that means, folks, except what the Scripture says. That what we're going through in this world, look at what Paul went through. Oh my goodness, beaten, 
shipwrecked, put in jail, it's not even worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed in us. We're, we will be glorified with him. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. I type really well sometimes. The first fruits of the Spirit. Our bodies will eventually be redeemed. These old bodies. And I tell you what, mine is looking more and more every day for redemption. I'm telling you. I, I, you know, I don't know what's winning, old age or gravity. But they're both, both kicking my, well, they're beating me right now. So I'm telling you. So, but let's move on. I, I got to get to the good stuff. This, I mean, this is all wonderful. Oh, I, I have to say a word about this. I'm sorry. This, this is the professor in me coming out. Uh, you know, I, I like stuff like this. Uh, look at look the apocalyptic framework. This is kind of the thinking that is going on here. Um, I'll just very quickly. We have the old age from Adam until this world ends. We have the coming of Jesus, which starts our present age that we live in. And then we have the second coming of Jesus, which then ends the old age and starts eternity. The thing I wanted to point out with this, though, is we live in this present age, this church age, the already but not yet. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. So in a way, we already have first fruits. Another way of saying that, we have the down payment of God's Holy Spirit flowing within us and the supernatural that indwells us, the divine that is in within us is a foreshadowing of the glory of the divine we will experience in fullness when God's kingdom comes in its fullness, when we're in a place called heaven or when this earth passes away or however we want to say there's a million and one metaphors because nothing describes it. So, but what I want to point out is we have this down payment. We have the already, not yet. We, today we live by faith and by hope and by grace. And in the future, when we enter into God's kingdom, whether it's in heaven or, or the new age or whatever you want to call it, our salvation will be complete. Our bodies will be glorified. We'll get rid of these old bodies. I wonder if we get to, like, choose what our new ones look like. I, I tell people I want the early Schwarzenegger model, right? You know, just pack some 22-inch buys or something. I, I, don't, I don't know what we want. But an incorruptible body that we'll have for eternity and eternal life. Here's the cool thing, though, is in the present age, with the down payment of the Holy Spirit and God's divinity within us, not only do we live by faith, grace, and hope, but we already have salvation and eternal life and ultimate glorification of our body. We already have those. They're in our possession by what? The down payment or the presence of God's Holy Spirit being in our lives. So we're in this what we call already, not yet, right? We already understand through God's Spirit and identify with what the future is going to be. But yet we still have to live in this world until we either die or Jesus comes again. James Dobson's dad, I love what he said about that. I know a lot of us, you know, we want, we want Jesus to come again because, you know, the privilege of going through death, maybe not something we all want to do. His dad was just, a, James Dobson said his dad was just the opposite. He said, no, I want to die. And his son was perplexed. And he said, yeah, because I want to, like, just when death thinks it's got me, I just want to go, man, nah, 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 you didn't get me, right? <laughs> right, because death doesn't win, right? Because someday even death is dead, right? Death dies. Death dies. All right, get off that slide. Well, that's for another time. All right. We're almost getting to the good stuff. We got 
five minutes. Uh, Romans 8, 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to his spirit, the, to his purpose. This is where God's spirit now, in the meantime, while we live in this present age, before we f- realize the kingdom, God's spirit helps us in our weaknesses. Right? We're not fully in heaven yet, so God's spirit is in us, and God's spirit helps our weaknesses. One thing is, we don't know what we should pray for, right? But the Spirit prays for us. Those of you who have been on the 24-hour prayer thing, you went in thinking, man, I don't know what to say for that half hour, and maybe you filled it with a bunch of words. That's okay. Because what? God's Spirit was praying for us with utterings that we can't understand. That God's Spirit, we don't know what to pray for, but God's Spirit prays for us. I don't know about you all, but when I go to pray, I pray for what I think I need to pray for. Thank God that God's Spirit knows exactly what we need to have prayed for. God's Spirit prays for us. It's amazing. And then it says, Christ intercedes for us. So here here we have the Spirit praying for us, and Christ is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. We'll have a picture of that in a moment. But Romans 8, 28, another, I think, sometimes misunderstood verse in the Bible. Look at the NIV version. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. You see the difference between those two? In all things, bad things, God works for the good of those who love him. Not all things that happen work for the good. You see that? I mean, I think there's a misconception. And, and by the way, you have every right to disagree with me on this. Because there is a lot of disagreement in the church about this verse and what that means. There are some that thinks anything that happens to you is happening for your good. Yeah. I've been at the hospital when the nine-year-old daughter of a friend got ran over and killed. And I'm supposed to tell him. Well, this is somehow for your good. No. No, absolutely not. No. That, that's based upon King James Version, wonderful version of the Bible that's used for a long, long time. But the NIV, I think, gets it right. That in that terrible situation, though, God will work for good in it, whatever good can come out of it. For those who love the Lord, by the way, not just anybody, for those who love the Lord and those who are called according to his purpose, that God works for good. I do have a Walter Crouch translation of that verse, by the way, and I'll just give it to you. It's just as legit, and there are other versions that translate it this way, is that God works together with those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose for good in all things. That what? We're instruments in this world to work for good in all things that happen. And God works with us to do that. Just as acceptable with Greek grammar as either of these two versions of that same verse. So, God works for good in all things. But don't think all things that happen work for good. I I think that just makes us puppets just my opinion all right 
Let's get to the good verses. I mean, all right, so now we get to the end of the chapter. And I just want to say this. For, for me, from verse 31 to verse 39 are the most incredible verses in all the letters. Not, not the Gospels. I mean, Jesus says some incredible, but I'm saying in all the letters, the epistles, just incredible. Let me, let, let me just read this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus, he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. You see what he's saying? If God doesn't condemn us, who can condemn us? God is the all-powerful being of the universe. And if God doesn't get, no one can challenge God on justifying us through what his son has done. No one can condemn us. No one, because God has justified us. Why do we let people condemn us? Why do we let our own selves condemn ourselves when God himself doesn't condemn us? But beyond that, not only that, but Jesus Christ intercedes for us anyway when the old Satan, the accuser, throws stuff in God's face about us. I love the scene of Jesus being the defense attorney and Satan the prosecutor. Can you imagine? Next case, case 329, Ron Gouge. Satan, oh, you should see all this stuff. And I can just see Jesus saying, objection, your honor. Daddy, dad, Ron's one of mine. Judge, case dismissed. Right? Right? I, I, you know, it doesn't get any gooder than that. I mean, it doesn't. I mean, it can't. I mean, we can't lose. The judge loves us. He's the one who did and, and told the son, you have to go, son. And Jesus, remember, in the garden, he said, Father, if there's any way, pass this cup from me, but nevertheless, thy will be done. And Jesus went to the cross and died for us and paid the penalty for our sins. So now we do not have to pay that penalty. God, the judge himself, did that. But not only that, our defense attorney is his son. We can't lose. What an incredible thought that is. What an incredible thought. All right, let's hit the high water mark. Next verse, because we're out of time. Oh, I just love this. Let me just, let me just read this. Y'all just listen. This is just amazing. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. But in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you see that list? Look at the first part of the list. It's all earthly things that can happen to us. Look at that. Tribulation. These are the troubles and challenges we go through. Or distress. This is when bad things actually happen to us. 
persecution when people are mean to us or pick on us or famine which means you know if we're out food or nakedness which is poverty or peril which is like natural tragedies or sword someone kills us or threatens us none of that stuff can separate us from god's love none of it but then he goes beyond that and he goes to things that are beyond the natural world nor, neither death nor life nor angels and this probably means demons supernatural beings principalities these are the powers of darkness nor things present anything in the present age or anything in the age to come nothing is ever going to come nor powers any kind of powers nor height anything we find out in space in the stars or in the depths of the ocean or the depths of the earth nor any created thing no created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God in other words nothing why? Because everything is created by God. Nothing created will ever separate us from God's love. No matter how much we feel like we're not in God's love, God still loves us. The Bible is sure of one thing, and that is this. God loves us. God is for us. And that needs to be our message to a world that needs hope so badly. I have to finish with a story, Dell. I know I'm over. I have to finish with a story about Dallas. <laughs> now he's like, no. <laughs> yeah. So we were living in Waco, Texas, and Dow was going to preschool at First Baptist Church Waco. And it, when I would come pick him up from preschool, they were always out at recess, and uh, I would have to go get him at, at recess, you know, with the kids there. And, uh, but if a kid got in trouble then they weren't playing with the other kids. They had to sit on the edge of the basketball court. And so I drove up one day, and Dallas was sitting on the edge of the basketball court. So I walked up to him, and I said, what's going on? And, you know, his little six-year-old self looks up at me and says, nothing extraordinary. <laughs> what does a six-year-old get using a word like extraordinary? I mean, it just shows he's been odd since he was little. I mean, it's just always been that way. Nothing extraordinary. I said, did you get in trouble? He goes, no. I go, well, why are you sitting here? He goes, they're all stupid. And I'm, Dallas? <laughs> we don't use the word stupid. It's a curse word in our family. But he said, they're all stupid. I said, tell me what went on. He goes, they don't know anything. And I go, what do you, tell me. He goes, well, we were talking in class. And we were talking about God creating stuff. And in class... They, they said that God didn't, the kids were saying, God created everything but the devil. And he said, and I said, no, God created the devil. And they all, and even the teacher said, God didn't create, didn't God, God created everything, didn't he, Dad? Boy, and a child shall lead them, right? Right? I mean, who was right? My six-year-old son. That God created even Satan who was a Lucifer, an angel that fell from heaven because he dared to try to take the place of God. No created thing, not even Satan himself, can separate us from the love of God. I mean, to me, that truth, that truth is the truth I go to bed with at night. It's the truth that I rely on when I'm lying in a hospital bed at Duke wondering about, am I going to make it or not? Nothing can separate us from God's love. The unmistakable truth of the whole Bible is that God 
loves us. It is the greatest truth of Scripture. And it's the, ones that we, the one we should proclaim from the mountaintops. God loves you. He's provided a way for you to have relationship with him, to be adopted in his family so that you can call him daddy, so that you can be part of God's family. God loves you. God loves you. Leave here tonight and be thankful tomorrow for the greatest truth in all the universe. God loves you. He does. for that fantastic fantastic word we need we invite you all to stand as always the altar is open you got something that's on your heart or mind about what Walter mentioned today to you uh, come lay that at the feet of the Lord uh, you just want to come be thankful for your family tomorrow come be thankful for that tonight as we sing